This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Hauser and Portia Hensley. Welcome to the Women in a Day podcast, and today we are here with Carla Fredericks. Carla is the director of the American Indian Law Clinic and director of the American Indian Law Program, which serves as the umbrella organization for Colorado Law's academic, practice-focused, and community outreach activities in American Indian Law. She is a graduate of the University of Colorado and Columbia Law School. Welcome, Carla. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So getting started, the first thing we always ask our guests, because this is Women in a Day, what is the challenging or the most challenging or one of the most challenging parts of your day? Okay, so one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how to be in two places at the same time, how to be two people (laughs) at the same time. So the most challenging part of my day is when I'm trying to play multiple roles at the same time. So often getting child ready for school, trying to get ready for work, fielding emails, making lunch, yes. maybe taking a shower. Um, <laughs> that That's really hard. And then similarly at the end of the day when yeah. I'm trying to get everything wrapped up at work and then I'm trying to get home in time for a soccer game or whatever, really hard to manage all of that at the same time. It seems like your work is something that does not have clearly defined nine. I mean, most people's doesn't at this point, mm-hmm. but your job seems like it really is an around the clock mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And in some ways, that's really advantageous because yes. when I was working as a partner at a big law firm in New York, I had long hours, but there was a lot of long hours in the office and then commuting time. And yeah. I just didn't have a lot of flexibility. And so one of the things that I really wanted moving into academia, among other things, professionally, is that personally, I wanted more flexibility. And I knew that the job was going to be hard, and I knew it was going to be time consuming, and I've probably made it even more so through (laughs) my own motivations. But just having the ability to make it to that soccer game at four o'clock and then come back and start working has been a real gift for me. So So you have one son, Yes. yes, and he's... He's eight now? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you moved to Boulder from New York how long ago? Five years this month. Carla, tell us a little bit about what your work actually entails. Well, I have multiple roles in this job. Um, First and foremost, I'm an educator. So I run the American Indian Law Clinic. And in the program, students practice law under my bar license. And then there's a companion seminar where we talk about the doctrinal aspects of the law, and then we also talk through different issues that are coming up in some of the legal matters we're working on. It's really to to ensure that students leave law school practice ready with some real experience, and then also having served the public in public interest cases. All of our matters touch on some unique dimension of either Indian law or Indigenous people's rights law internationally. Um, We have more or less a 50-50 split among our matters. So there's the educator part. I would say I do a lot of air traffic control, trying to connect people in different ways, whether it's students, clients, clients to clients, clients to decision makers. And then I think a lot of what I do as a lawyer and as an academic is what I would characterize as translation. So there's a real disparity of understanding between indigenous peoples, American Indians, and the broader population and a difference in viewpoint about how things should be. Um, So a lot of what I do is I just try to connect people and 
try to find commonality of understanding. And I think a lot of lawyers, that's what they do. They translate between clients and decision makers. So, How many students do you work with at any given time? The cap on our clinical program is 12 students in the course. I have them for a full year. This year, somehow, I ended up with 18 students because I had some continuing students. Okay. You know, it's it's meant to be a small, intimate classroom, intensive teaching experience. But I find that the more students that we have, you know, within a manageable quantity really results in more impactful work that can be done. And it's nice to have advanced students because then they can kind of help the newer students and... Just, we're just building capacity at multiple levels, like peer-to-peer learning. How many of your students do you think go on to actually work in law that pertains to Indigenous people or American Indians? I would say it varies. I think probably around half is, is about really? the midpoint. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, is like the Indian law is really translatable to other um, aspects of the legal profession because it's the only true area left of general practice. Interesting. So Indian tribes are governments, and therefore they see every different legal problem that any government might see. You know, housing, healthcare, criminal prosecution, federal lobbying, public land. Those are to say everything from water rights law, to. Yeah. Exactly. What kind of cases are you working on? So we've had different litigations over the years. We've had big impact type litigations that we've played a role in, including the Dakota Access Pipeline fight. Mm -hmm. And then we have cases relating to Indian child welfare and custody. So really um, more discrete cases on the individual level to really big impact level cases. And then we do some international litigation as well before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Is it hard to get the continuity with having new students coming in at different times in the case? Yeah, so we try to create some institutional memory for that. And one thing that I really learned in this role, and I think maybe I took for granted when I was a partner at my firm, is how important the administrative aspect of a case is. Mm -hmm. Because here I really have to manage all of that, and it's really important for the reasons that you just mentioned. Whereas before, you know, I had like... A floor of files and 10 file clerks paralegals. and paralegals. Yeah. Assistants. Right. So I've had to learn to become more organized. How many cases at a time are you managing? Um, so we had 11 matters in the clinic wow. with 17 students. And is it just a semester class? It's a year long. A year. Okay. A year long. And, and the typical clinic load is much lighter than that. So one thing, you know, I think that's relevant to listeners of your podcast is that I think women are tend to be pretty ambitious and and I think we kind of tend to take on too much. And so I'm trying to reflect on that in the in the next year and that's always what I spend the summer kind of noodling on is how to do impactful work while also being effective and that means not taking on too much. So this year, you know, we did really punch above our weight in a lot of the cases that we took on and then we also had a higher volume and the students really rose to the occasion. But that's not a pace that we can keep up year to year. So we're always recalibrating. So what would you do with your newfound time if you were able to prioritize? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I don't know that I would necessarily have more time. I think that if I were able to hit that balance exactly right, I think I'd feel more present in what I'm doing. One thing that's been really interesting is thinking about mentors, female mentors. So... 
One of our clients is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Her name is Victoria Tally Corpus, and she's been an Indigenous human rights activist since like last 40 years. Wow. And that position requires her to travel, I would say, at least 10 months out of the year. So it's kind of a long story, but her own government has targeted her for her human rights work, criminalized her because she's a human rights defender. And because of that, she can't go back to the Philippines where she lives. Mm. And I had a long conversation with her last week, and it's really awful because those two months of the year when she can get that time is her the most precious time in her life. You know, just to think about time differently, you know? Yeah. Um, yes, I would love to sit still, and yes, I'd love to be more present, but at least I have the choice about that, and some of the women I work with don't. Mm-hmm. There are pressures that exist that are because of need, pressures that exist because of obligation, and then pressures that also exist because, you know, you can't help but just be aware of what other what the circumstances are that other people are facing. Exactly. And with Vicki, um, we organized her U.S. country visit, and uh, my staff attorney, who's also female, she and I basically created a creed during the visit that if you see a bathroom, you better use it because this is the only time that you're going to have the chance because it was that fast paced. And to see someone just in that environment all the time, like it just sets the bar a little bit differently. Yeah. And then you have to come down from that and then you have to think about, okay, well, that's not sustainable all the time. So how do you do effective work and keep up a pace that is responsive to the needs of the community while also creating a sustainable life where you can maintain your health and do self-care and all those things and take care of your family. That's a tough balance. I think that's a common thread that we've seen in all of our interviews is just how to find that balance that really doesn't exist because mm-hmm. it's just so different for everybody. Mm-hmm. What do you do for self-care? I walk my dog. <laughs> um, we live right near one of the trails up in South Boulder and we like to go out there and just walk around and feel the breeze. Not as often as I would like, but just to have that completely quiet space. I turn off my phone. You know, time with family, like, I don't, I think I really see that as a really serious priority and obligation, but I also think of it as being really helpful for my soul and my spirit. So I would count that as well. I'm lucky because I have a really supportive husband who has a really flexible schedule. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And we have a true co-parenting partner relationship across our marriage. So good. Well, it's important to have a partner. Yes. Because what do you do without, you can't. can't, A lot of my friends that work that whose husbands work and whose husbands don't want to inhabit that role. When I look at their life from my vantage point, it looks like single parenting. Yeah. Yes. You know, or I have friends who have, you know, full-time support in the home. You know, one of my friends who lives in New York, she has somebody, she's employing 60 hours a week. Wow. Crazy. So, cause she has a big deal job and so does her husband and that's what it takes. And I often take it for granted that I have a husband like that, just how it wasn't that long ago that men were not expected to even consider taking on that role and know mm-hmm. how to change diapers or sue the crying baby or any of that. Mm-hmm. And They've changed. Now I was just commenting that you go to the park and it's almost more men than women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're staying at home more and supporting more women. And one thing I think 
you know, it's not just women that, you know, bear the burden of this. It's also the men because there's, you know, I've had these mentors who have kind of done, done it all right. Quote unquote. And they've had children and they've had career and they've been at this breakneck pace. But I think the men of our generation don't really have that and they don't have that support. So like when my husband decided that he wanted to be more present at home, the people that he worked with kind of pushed back on him a little bit because they didn't have that opportunity. And it really does take, you know, supporting the men who want to do that as well. And I think that piece is kind of overlooked sometimes. So Carla, you always knew that you wanted to be a lawyer, yes? Yeah, pretty much. I think, I don't know if I always knew or if like I was a very argumentative child and it was sort of like (laughs) foisted upon me. Pretty much. I mean, I I love to play with Barbies, but it would be like courtroom Barbie. That's really funny. A little briefcase Barbie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Drafting motions Barbie. Yes. (laughs) How did you decide to get into this type of law? So my path to the type of law I'm practicing now is a little bit circuitous. I actually went to law school in New York at Columbia because I wanted to do museum and art law. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's sort of a connection. So I went to the University of Colorado as an undergrad, and I was the research assistant for this professor, Deward Walker. Deward was instrumental in the passage of the Native American Graves Patriation Repatriation Act, Graves Protection Repatriation Act, rather. And it's called NAGPRA, and it basically imposed regulation and law upon museums for return of artifacts and human body remains. So can you um, just tell our listeners, too, how many artifacts and remains have been, what's the ballpark of items that have been returned? I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. It's I like, mean, every. I was at the Brooklyn Museum, and they had some exhibit that had some indigenous stuff in it, and they had a whole right up on the wall about NAGPRA because it's so significant to the museum community and it's not just best practices, it's federal law. So I was really interested in thinking about how to implement that statute and thinking about how underrepresented Indian people are in that community. And Columbia being in New York, they have the best art law program in the country. It's actually run by Ruth Bader Ginsburg's daughter, Jane. Oh, cool. And then I got to law school and was interested in experimenting with some stuff that I hadn't been exposed to. I ended up working for the Innocence Project, the first iteration with Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. Um, I worked on some civil rights cases with them um, and Johnny Cochran actually figured out the criminal law was probably not for me. Ended up falling into a big firm in New York. Doing what? Tax and employee benefits. <laughs> I mean, just, you Did know. Did you go there for the money? I went there for the money, and also I went into the tax department because I knew I wanted to work in nonprofit. And but even there, you brought the work that you were passionate about to your firm. I yes. tried. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um, what that looked like and how you went about that. So the first firm I was at, I was only there for a year. Um, it was like one of these typical New York sweatshop type firms, and it just wasn't for me. And then I was lucky enough to get a job at a plaintiff side, large securities class action law firm. And I stayed there until I came here, actually. And I went from being um, an associate to a partner there and built a practice group there in Native American law. So I worked on a big securities litigation for many years and ended up settling for over $3 billion, which you know, it was an amazing experience. And I got to work on really high level, you know, legal briefs and policy and all kinds of things. And then I 
kind of had been asking around within the partnership about whether or not there was an appetite to try building business in Indian country because the cornerstone of the firm's work was about um, financial fraud and misconduct Mm -hmm. and representing people who had had experiences being defrauded. And I knew of several instances in Indian country multi-million dollar cases where tribes just were approached by a snake oil salesman of some type and and ended up in a really bad situation. And so we explored the area um, as a possible practice group. We took on a case on behalf of the Ute tribe in northern Utah, and that was kind of how the practice group was born. Is that common for big law firms to even entertain taking on things like that? No. And the reason why is that there's a lot of resources that go into a case. Yeah. And most of the time, people who've been defrauded don't have the ability to pay lawyers. Right. And so a lot of fraud does not get prosecuted in, in civil, civilly or criminally for that matter. And so we had a model of contingency fees. And so we were able to take cases with and take a portion of recovery if the case was successful. And that worked out really well in this area, but it takes a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, so it's it's actually, it was coined at one time, bet the company litigation, because the cases are so big that if the company lost, the company would be bankrupt. Wow. Yeah. So that, that the case that we brought, the $3.5 billion settlement, was a bet the company case. Wow. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, mean, I guess I like doing things that are kind of like large and yeah. big and um, hopefully paradigm shifting. And that's, that's what really made me want to get into academia is not just for lifestyle reasons, but I just kept, as a litigator, I just kept seeing like the problems after they had already wreaked their havoc and done their damage. And I really wanted to think about ways to be more preventative about the types of problems I was seeing. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I really focus on in the clinic is trying to make sure that people who are going into Indian law practice have some acumen in business law, because a lot of the cases that I was seeing on in the fraud context, if somebody had looked at them more closely, might have been prevented. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. Indian lawyers, typically, they're social justice lawyers, or they focus on Indian law or constitutional law. There, there isn't a huge focus on business law. And so that puts tribes at a distinct disadvantage when they're getting into business arrangements. So one thing that I'm really curious about, how do you talk to your son about his Indian heritage and growing up as someone who had to deal with that like the thing that i always think about is just when halloween rolls around mm-hmm. like i always think of you <laughs> <laughs> because i know i have always been really like you don't wear that you know like you wouldn't dress up like this and you wouldn't dress up like mm-hmm. this do you feel like it's different mm-hmm. how do you talk to him and how can we talk to kids mm-hmm. about different issues so, I mean, this is, this is, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to meander a little bit. Go ahead. Meander so away. my son has like almost white blonde hair and blue eyes, and he's an enrolled member of our tribe. And when I was growing up, my mom has had white blonde hair and blue eyes. So that's where my son gets it in addition to my husband's side of the family. And when I was growing up, my parents were never like very straightforward with me about what my experience might be because I'm biracial. Mm -hmm. And so there were many situations that I was in where I was around 
a completely affluent group of white people until I was about eight in outside of Washington, D.C., where I knew that I was different, but I couldn't really articulate how. Mm -hmm. And then my dad, in part because I think he wanted my sister and I to know what an Indian community looked and felt like to live in. We always went back and forth to our ranch in North Dakota that's on our reservation, but to have a real experience living in a place um, on an Indian reservation. He took a job as the superintendent of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation when I was seven. Wow. And so we moved from Northern Virginia, where I was in private school, to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. I did not know that. When I was seven. They offered him like a house that had belonged to someone that they had earmarked for the superintendent. And my dad said, no, we're going to live in HUD housing like everyone else, because that's just how he was. And so we had this big house in Vienna, Virginia, and then we moved to a two-bedroom house, all four of us. It was like these little brown houses, and they were like, it was like tract housing, Mm -hmm. just one after the other the same. And it was like the shock of my life. Um, The first night we were there, my mom had this little brown Saab 900, and someone shot out all the windows of the Saab that night. Um, We woke up, and like there was like shattered glass everywhere. So I was like, welcome to the Mm -hmm. res. (laughs) Um, And my dad was the first um, Indian superintendent at Pine Ridge. And they, the federal government really wanted an Indian person there because this wasn't too long after the second siege at Wounded Knee in the 70s. Um, and he, you know, over the course of the two years that he was there, did a really awesome job, as far as I know, to try to really build bridges. And my mom, you know, was this white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed lady. She was a professional in D.C. She ran education programs for the Department of Defense. And so all of a sudden, she's a housewife in the middle of South Dakota. And it was like a really jarring experience for all of us. But racially, it was really bizarre because the Indian kids called me white girl. And so I was like kind of like in no man's land, you know, in terms of identity. It was like, well, I knew I was different in Northern Virginia, and I know I'm different here, And the only place where I really feel at home is with my family. And my dad, luckily, has a huge family. He's the oldest of nine children. Okay. And most of them um, live up in North Dakota, still near our ranch. So I had at least some nexus of what being an Indian meant to me through that family. And if I hadn't had that, I I don't know. You know, it was really bizarre. And I think with my son, I, I really want him to have a different experience with his identity than I did. And the only way that I know how to do things a little differently is to be really candid with him about mm-hmm. it. So we talk a lot about how he doesn't look Indian. Yeah. And what does that mean? And what should an Indian look like? We talk about the Washington football team logo. You know, we've talked about, is that what an Indian looks like? And asked each other those questions and had that conversation. When the Dakota Access Pipeline fight happened in 2016, which we were all really involved in, he knew what was going on. Yeah. He knew about people wanting to build a pipe and it possibly hurting Indian people. He spent a lot of time with David Archambault. You know, the access he has to people that I work with is something that has been intentional mm-hmm. because a lot of the people that inspired me growing up are people that I met through my dad, Vine Deloria. Russell Means, John Echo Hawk. 
um, my dad's brother, Tom Fredericks, in addition to a lot of really powerful women. Rebecca Adamson, who I still work with, who's one of my mentors, who I've known since I was a child. Wow. And for me, like him having access to people of that generation is really important too because they just have a totally unique experience and a lot to teach him, and I want him to have the benefit of that. There are things that I can teach him, but really it's this elder generation that he'll only have access to for part of his life, and Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to promote that as well. I mean, I have to go to his class um, next week to talk about the history of Native Americans in Boulder, and I'm going to do something a little subversive that I haven't shared with the teacher, which is I'm going to talk for half the time about the present day of American Indians in Boulder. Because for kids learning about Indians, it's always about the past. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they see somebody who's like a contemporary Indian person and they don't know what to make of it. Right. And that to me doesn't feel very helpful. I mean, there's a lot of history that's really important to us, but it's not just the past. You know, there's a a current experience that they need to be aware of as well. I think that's incredibly important. And I think that's great that you're doing that. Even people of our generation have (laughs) such misguided ideas of what Indian culture is like in this country. And there's so many things that we just have no idea about historically, like huge historical events. Mm -hmm. And we're just not expected to know that. And I think that's a huge loss for everybody. Mm -hmm. Carla, you told us before on your questionnaire that we had you do before the show that one of the hardest things in your life was being a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and you also mentioned that being on the reservation, they would call you the white girl. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what it's like to, to have people think that you're white or, or what do you identify with as? Mm-hmm. I mean, you are bi- you said biracial. Mm-hmm. So well, what it's interesting, like? like being Native American, you're a member of a tribe. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court has said that's a political classification and not a racial one. So, you know, like if you're if you have dual, it's like dual citizenship. Um, And that's something I've talked to my son a lot about, too. Like what you look like or what percentage you are like with Indians. Like one of the terrible things that's happened to Indian people is they're measured by their blood in many cases, like dogs, you know. So we're trying to really get away from that and think more about identity in a political sense. Mm But professionally, because of what I do, like, I do wear my identity as a professional badge in a way. You know, I can't help but do that because I'm part of this community and people know who I am. And and I also think that people, you know, develop a sense of trust and want to know where you're coming from. And and I have to be really um, transparent about that. So... You know, being a woman of color in academia, like everyone around here knows that I'm Native American, right? And whenever there is a Native American issue that comes up on this campus, a lot of times, like, it trickles into this office. And, you know, there's just certain realities attached to being a woman of color in the workplace, especially in an environment like this one, that are kind of difficult to navigate. You know, working with students is 99% wonderful, Sometimes it's not wonderful, and sometimes there are, you know, gender dynamics that will come up, race dynamics. I've had different students cut me off mid-sentence while I'm trying to make a point or deliver a lecture. And the way I speak, I tend to really try to be thoughtful about what I'm saying, and so I'll pause. And I had one student try to fill in what I was thinking, 
in the classroom. And it, it, it was very gendered, right? Yeah. It's a male student. And I was like, you know, I don't think you'd do this if it were a male professor. I don't think you'd feel empowered to do this. Mm-hmm. You find that they uh, are more informal with you. I find that in my profession, like they'll use my first name instead of my title. Right. And with the men, they don't. Right. Do you have, do you have experience that? I have, you know, I've actually by design because of the teaching I do, I've really encouraged a more informal relationship with students, but I've also told them that that's a choice that I'm making, not a choice that they get to make. Because I do think that, you know, I deserve the same respect as anybody else in this building. Sure. You know, being a woman of color, like there's just different instances, I think, where you don't want to have to be talking about the same, raising the same issues all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to make everything through a race lens or through a gender lens, even when you're seeing it. And so you have to really pick your battles. And, and sometimes, you know, I don't feel like ignoring something and I have to. So that, that's challenging working in the profession that my quote unquote color or my political affiliation or my racial affiliation or whatever is, this stuff comes up all the time. Do people see you as kind of just one dimensional Like, she is the Indian person, and that's who she is. Like, you, I'm sure you have many facets to who you are and Mm -hmm. what your personality is, but you are seen as, like, this person, and they kind of put you in that box. Yeah. I I mean, I think one thing that happened when I first got here is that some people were a little surprised at my personality because I spent so long in New York, and my family is kind of a no bullshit family. And so they expected me to be like, really like, Oh, and like, let's look at the sky today. (laughs) You know, I'm so grateful. (laughs) Yeah. And that's not how I am, you know? And, and so I think that was really hard. Like just trying to make people understand that I didn't need to fit into the box that they were creating for me, Sure, but I just need to be who I am. And You know, there are some times when I I might look more Indian to them and sometimes when I might not. And that's my choice. And it's really interesting because just pictures that I've seen of you, like on social media and things, when you go, when you show pictures of you lined up with other people at a UN event, it really is a spectrum of lots of different people who look very different from each other. And I think it's great for people to just have that visual of, you know, you just, you don't know. And it's a spectrum and... You just have to embrace people as individuals first and not define by that. We're so wrapped around the axle with what people look like. Yeah. Does this look Native American? Does this look right? Does she fit in? Like, who cares? I mean, this is who she is, and this is what she's doing, and this is what she's passionate about. Just the fact that there are those boxes, it's why you're, the work that you're doing is so important. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's definitely a long way to go, but I think... You know, as time goes along, one of the great things that's happened in the since November of 2016 is that people have become so much more aware of this stuff, right? Oh, yes. And that's the gift of all of this current moment that we're in. Um, and and I'm going to embrace it. You know, it. I don't think anyone gets any benefit of calling someone out all the time. You know, and I think that that's something that's happened a little bit too. But I do think that there's. There's this possibility of common understanding that I think is really strong right now. And, and in a lot of my work, that's, that's kind of where we're trying to go. So as a litigator, everything's adversarial. It's us versus them. 
And one thing we're talking a lot about in the class and through other projects that I guess I'm trying to pilot within this program (laughs) is indigenizing the viewpoint on that and thinking more instead of one-to-one, it's more like a circle and more like a continuum of understanding and trying to build space for that and trying to build space for that conversation, difficult conversation, and trying to find any points of mutual concern that can build a level of consensus about different things. And that's really the work I'm most excited about right now. You know, there's some really hard issues out there. Are there places where we can come together? You know, tribes and states and the feds have really interesting dynamics where sometimes they're, you know, all jockeying and trying to elbow each other out of the way for jurisdiction and power. And sometimes they collaborate and come together. In our human trafficking work, for example, it's critical that that collaboration happen. Or Is there a lot of human trafficking? Yeah, there, there's an uptick in human trafficking, and a lot of it's linked to extractive industry development. Do they take girls from the reservations to places, or do, are they there? So in order to be trafficked for sex trafficking, you don't have to be transported. That's like a common trafficking myth. You just have to be coerced into committing commercial sex acts. So it could happen they, on the they, reservation. Do they commit them on the reservation? On the reservation, off the reservation, kind of there's a whole spectrum of circumstance around this, and a lot of it's related to drug abuse. Mm-hmm. So the trafficker will basically entice the woman with drugs or alcohol sure. and then yeah. and then traffic them. So in that case, like you'd really need all hands on deck to find a solution. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of... Um, efforts for tribes to be recognized to be able to prosecute crimes on their own reservations. And that's absolutely critical, but it's also critical to think, well, where it's going to take decades to make legal reform. We can certainly work on that front, but in the situation we're in now, if the federal government has the power to prosecute these crimes, like how do we collaborate better with them to ensure that that happens? Do you find the tribes are working together? Are you a nexus for that work? Yeah, so our human trafficking work actually has really um, evolved into creating a more intertribal collaboration, which is really interesting because that doesn't happen that often. Um, It can happen in different like policy arenas, but in terms of really looking at like, okay, what's working, what isn't working, creating space for those conversations is really important. And so that's one thing that we've really committed ourselves to is connecting and trying to develop a collaboration between tribes as to different models. It's tough work, but it's good work. What would you say the best piece or best piece of advice that you've ever received is? Don't give up. My parents were both like really, really intense people and they were really fighters, both of them. You know, there's this whole thing now about grit, right? Mm -hmm. It's like super popular to talk about grit. Yes. And I, I guess like that whole way of talking about it is kind of lost on me because I just had to have it. Did they be- teach you it, or do you think you were born yeah. with that interest? <laughs> I mean, I think they kept, like I like the Pine Ridge situation I told you about before, like I just kept being put in situations where it was like sink or swim. And it wasn't, it just sounds like for you, grit was not, like we have to manufacture it. Right, it's like a and, choice. Yeah, 
like let's seek out opportunities mm-hmm. that would make us really uncomfortable and really challenge us. And right. What about your siblings? Do they have grit? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all pretty tough people. It, but it's funny because the last time I talked to somebody about this conceit of grit was my son's teacher. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he, we have, he's, he, he is by efforts of mine and my husband's, he's very privileged, you know? And so how do we instill in him this value around grit without putting him in a situation where, you know, it's like a negative for him. And I find that I sound a lot like my dad when I'm talking to him. My dad grew up in the Great Depression on Indian Reservation, like one room house, dirt floor, like the whole thing. And he wouldn't eat turnips because one year that was all they had to eat. And they that would, would do it. Yeah. <laughs> what would he tell you? Well, I know that story because it was like, finish your food because, you know, and, you know, similarly, my mom, like, grew up, like, toting a rifle around, didn't have indoor plumbing until she was 14. Where'd she grow up? South Dakota. So when you grow up around that and then you're raising a kid in Boulder, it's kind of like, okay, how do I not, like, sound like, you know, my hard ass parents and try to be empathetic and understanding, but still instill this value I I talk to him a lot about my parents, actually, because they're no longer alive. So I want him to, like, have a sense. I think he does. Really? Yeah, I think he does. But it's like, you know, talking story to him all the time. So you've mentioned a lot of people that really are inspiring to you. But who are some of your role models that you've had growing up and current ones? Well, I talked before about um, Vicki Telecorpus, who's my client, Honestly, of of all the people I've met in my life, she's one of the most impressive. She's actually trained as a nurse and um, is an Igrat woman from the Philippines. She's from Baguio City, which is about seven hours bus ride from Manila. So it's really the sticks of the Philippines. And she became an indigenous rights activist when her community was fighting a dam. And hydroelectric dams are really devastating for indigenous people because they cut off the waterways. Um, and really the way of life and also environmental habitat and all that stuff. So the community was fighting the dams and it was really the men that were going to the front lines because they're a warrior society. And the government started killing the men and the community got together and they said, what are we going to do? And they said, we're going to have to send the women. And so she became an activist and started going to the front lines to protest these dams in the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. So she's trained as a nurse. She's probably intellectually the most formidable person I've ever met in my life. She's one of those people that can skim a 30-page document in 20 minutes and know the whole thing. And she's just nonstop and really committed and really, through all of that, like a really kind and accessible um, Where is she now? person. She's in New York. Okay. She's She can't go home to the Philippines right. because she's under this terrible threat from her own government. But, you know, she's... She's always teasing me about only having one child. You know, I need to have more children. I'm like, I'm not like you. I can't do everything. But she really is one of these people that can do everything and does it with a lot of grace and good humor. So, Carla, what's the best place for people to find you to read more about the work you do? Should they go to the CU Law website? Should we link that? or? Sure. I'm terrible about promoting my own work. Um, <laughs> that's, that's another common theme. Uh, Refer so to if there are any listeners out there who the, would like... <laughs> in episode one, we talked about acts of power and being seen in the world. And that's kind of a universal touchstone of things that lots of women face. And 
Yeah. And I think for me, it's cultural. Like the whole look at me thing is really anathema to a lot of indigenous people. Yes, I can see that. Um, So I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. But I also recognize that at least maybe not with, you know, like achievements or whatever, but with work that I'm doing that I really want people to benefit from, then I'm willing to put it out there. Um, The Indian Law Program has a Facebook page, which has kind of a dual purpose, which is to promote the program, what we're doing, and then also to raise awareness about the different issues that we're involved in. And then we have this new project called the First People's Investment Engagement Project. Um, That's about promoting corporate social responsibility for indigenous peoples. And it's my startup (laughs) that I'm doing with the business school, which I'm really excited about. I love that. I think if Stan, or like one of, I mean, there are so many lessons that we can take away from Standing Rock, Mm -hmm. but it really is that so often Indian issues, Indian rights are American issues and Mm -hmm. American rights, and Mm -hmm. they pertain to all of us. And we all have an obligation to be educated and to just learn the history and learn what's going on. And. Right. I hope people took that away. I know I certainly did. Well, I think big. indigenous peoples have a lot of wisdom to share with humanity. Yes. And a real commitment to the earth and to peoples in general that mm-hmm. um, that is part of their creed and their their um, their cosmology. And so in Dapple, that really came across. Um, you know, water is life. We all need it. And I think that that was a really critical moment to really think about how behavior of companies affects all of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's the startup is actually a continuation of the work we did engaging with companies on Dapple and engaging with companies on other issues of going concern to indigenous peoples and and to humanity. I love that. I think that's so great. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for coming up to Boulder to see me. Of course. Anytime. Well, thank you so much to everyone for listening. You can learn more about Carla. You can see things that we didn't cover in the interview on our website, which is womeninadaypodcast.com. And thank you to Tony Tarbox, our great editor, and to Hillary Blair, who lent her voice to our intro. 